welcome to episode 42 of Behind the Schemes, a conversation about protecting our planet's precious wildlife from commerce, corruption, and counterfeit cures. This is Risha Kota Larson, and we are excited to present the State of the Pangolin with exclusive interviews featuring Dr. Chris Shepard, Regional Director of Traffic Southeast Asia, and Lisa Highwood, founder of Tiki Highwood Trust in Zimbabwe. You might have noticed that pangolins have rolled into the spotlight fairly recently, maybe just in 2014 or so, compared to the more well-known victims of wildlife trafficking like rhinos and elephants. That's good news for pangolins, and here at Animiticus, we have been focusing on pangolins for the past four years before they became famous. In fact, we launched World Pangolin Day in 2012, and that special day grows more popular every year. Now, as many of you guys know, the 17th meeting of the parties to the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, uh, otherwise known as CITES COP17 for short, takes place later this year from September 24th to October 5th. There is a total of four proposals covering the transfer of all eight pangolin species from Appendix 2 to Appendix 1. The United States is co-sponsoring the pangolin proposals along with five key pangolin range countries, India, the Philippines, Vietnam, Nigeria, and Senegal. Pangolins, our beloved, amazing, adorable pangolins are this close to receiving the strongest international protection possible, the CITES Appendix 1 listing. At the moment, all eight species are on CITES Appendix 2, which allows for regulated, limited trade as long as such trade does not pose a threat for pangolins in the wild. (laughs) Anyway, without further ado, Behind the Schemes listeners, here is the state of the pangolin with Dr. Chris Shepard filling us in on Asian pangolins and Lisa Highwood giving us the scoop on African pangolins. The four Asian pangolin species, Chinese, Indian, Philippine, and Sunda, are currently listed in CITES Appendix 2 with a zero export quota for wild-caught specimens. Do you think that CITES Appendix 2 with a zero export quota for wild pangolins um, has been enough protection for the four Asian species? Um, I don't think it's been uh, strong enough. I don't think it's been implemented as strongly as it should have been. The, the, the thing is with the CITES 2 but zero quota um, listing, is, is it, pretty, it is pretty much the same as the CITES 1 listing, but it doesn't seem to have been taken as seriously maybe as uh, an appendix 1 listing would be. And what we've seen is is the the illegal trade is continuing anyway in, in large volumes. And um, possibly because it's not CITES 1, it hasn't been prioritized, it, but the trade has continued. So how would an Appendix 1 listing change the situation for, uh, for the Asian pangolin species? Well, we'd like to think CITES parties would take it a lot more seriously and implement and enforce the, the CITES 1 listing. And some countries do have stronger penalties for violations involving Appendix 1 species, uh, stronger than Appendix 2 species. African pangolins, black-bellied, white-bellied, giant, and ground, have not fared well under the implementation of CITES Appendix 2. 
Do you think that CITES Appendix 2, which allows for regulated trade, has been successful at protecting African pangolins? Absolutely not. I think it's been very clear, particularly in this year alone, that uh, under the Appendix 2 listing, pangolins have virtually no protection out of Africa for trade, legal or illegal, um, that is taking place. So to answer you in short, no. Not at all. How do you think an Appendix 1 listing would change the situation for pangolins? Risha, I think it is very difficult to try and enforce anything when you have a gray zone. An Appendix 2 listing right now with African pangolins is what I call the gray zone. So by elevating it to Appendix 1, is it going to save the African pangolins from extinction? Absolutely not. Uh, What it will do is, I, I believe, a few things. Is one, it will allow us all to enforce a blanket this animal cannot be traded so if there's no confusion confusion with the law enforcement's on the ground um, that that's point one point two we are losing pangolin out of um, western central africa for people legitimately applying for cites permits to now take them over into zoos etc and i don't believe that this is a correct way either so by elevating appendix uh, two up to appendix one listing for pangolin, African pangolins, this will automatically crush this kind of trade. We think that it's not a, a big trade, but for all the animals that are caught, they are caught from the wild. Uh, they are not coming out of captive environments in Africa. Right now in Africa, there are no successful captive environments keeping pangolin and breeding F1 pangolins. So um, the regulation for CITES clearly states that pangolin or any species for that matter that are being imported into other countries have to come from a captive environment. And this is not taking place. Again, if it was uh, Appendix 1 listing, this was clearly show your authorities both in America or whatever the overseas countries are where these animals are being exported to that this has to stop. You don't allow it. There's no gray zone. And for me, that is our biggest step um, by uplisting these animals. Going forward, to save the species from extinction, it has to be a multifaceted approach. And uplisting to Appendix 1 under CITES is only one aspect that needs to be done. I agree with you about Appendix 2. If it's not implemented correctly, it does absolutely nothing but um, provide a way for traders to uh, profit. In 2013, at the last conference of the parties, my colleagues and I discussed and agreed on the need for all eight pangolin species to be listed on CITES Appendix 1. Three years later, here we are with the opportunity to really make a difference for pangolins. What do you think has changed regarding pangolin trade and conservation since COP16? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. It's really interesting, actually. There's There's been a lot of change. There's a lot of things have happened, um, both good and bad. Uh, on, on the plus side, pangolins have really become a, a much more popular species, uh, a lot more better known. They're in the public, they're in the news, they're in the media. Uh, and people are starting to care about pangolins and, and demand that something be done to save these species. That's great. Um, on the negative side, the demand in, in East Asia, especially in China, continues uh, and doesn't seem to be declining at all. And if anything, is increasing. And the Asian species have continued to be hammered with big shipments still taking place from countries like Indonesia. And at a local level in many countries, 
local people, hunters or researchers saying that, that pangolins have really declined. Uh, another big um, issue since the last COP is, is a, a real big increase in pangolins coming out of Africa to supply the demand in, in East Asia. This is clearly uh, due to the decline in pangolins in, in Southeast Asia and East Asia. Um, but at the same time, it may be because infrastructure is improving, criminal networks are, are, are better placed to move pangolins from Africa to Asia. Um, there's a lot more work that needs to be done to be completely understand why it's happening. But most importantly, it is recognizing that it is happening and that something has to be done about it immediately. Or we're going to see these African species go down the same path as the Asian ones. And really, with the size of the seizures that have been made lately coming out of Uganda or Nigeria, it's really terrifying. Well, I think that Africa's become Pandora's box of delights for the demand and is supplying the demand uh, in Asia. Um, I think that when you have a socioeconomic imbalance, i.e. Asia is becoming more um, economically empowered, whereas African countries are becoming economically disempowered, uh, the demand is fueled. And if you add that with the amount of trade that's um, taking place within Africa from from Asia, uh, a a demand is coming into this country, into this continent rather. And this is something that we didn't perhaps see four or five years ago to the point that we are now seeing it. And as we've discussed before, you're looking at 19 plus tons that we can account for just this year alone, having been exported out of Africa into Asia. Um, and I, I think this is, is a huge numbers. We're dealing with a population from every range state where pangolins occur, where we don't know what's on the ground. It is not an animal that we can very readily or easily count like um, rhino and elephant. And so, again, we're back in the gray zone. We, we don't know how many animals we have. We don't know how many we can protect. It's not, um, it's not as clear cut as protecting rhinos and elephants and say, this area has a high concentration of elephants, therefore put scouts on the ground um, who are all armed and let's protect this area. With pangolins, we just don't know where, where we need to protect. We know that they're distributed and you know, have a vast range across multiple African countries. And so how do you protect these areas? It's very, very, very difficult. Um, I think that over the last particularly 18 months to two years, there has been an increase in awareness. And there's also been a spotlight, particularly in Africa, um, working with your African authorities, um, particularly in a country like Zimbabwe. They take it very seriously, pangolin po- uh, poaching. And we now have um, major law enforcement. We have convictions that are being enforced and uh, the legislation is trying to protect these animals. So this, I believe, is something that we need to move in other African countries and I think that that is happening but at a very slow rate I don't believe it's happening as fast as it needs to um, with the amount of animals that are being traded out of this continent For regular listeners of our podcast and readers of our blog you know that the notion of captive breeding endangered species for trade has been totally debunked but some people continue to cling to this ridiculous loophole Why do you think some people are still talking about captive breeding pangolins for trade as a conservation measure? Well, I guess there's some people that that are um, honestly ignorant about pangolin breeding and think it might be a good conservation solution. Um, And for those people, I I hope we can educate them 
before poor decisions are made uh, and and pangolin breeding is accepted. But but for anyone who knows anything about pangolins, you know that pangolin breeding is just not possible. Commercial commercial breeding of pangolins is just not possible. They're not chickens. They don't breed quickly they don't breed in large numbers they don't even do well in captivity so any 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 claims of commercial captive breeding of penguins really need to be investigated uh, these claims need to be challenged and and followed up on because it's just not happening it would seem to me that part of the reason people might be doing that is so that they have um paperwork that they can use to launder wild-caught pangolins. Um, do you think that could happen? Sure, sure. That, that happens all the time. There's, there's, you know, there's a load of species in Southeast Asia that are being harvested from the wild and exported around the world on, on paperwork as their captive bred. It's, it's an extremely common smuggling method, laundering wild animals into the global market under the false pretenses that they're captive bred. I think if anybody is talking about captive breeding of pangolin, only one word comes to my mind, and that is commercial. They are only doing it because they believe that there is a value on this animal's head, which obviously there is, but it's a it's an illegal value, um, that they are trying to hide behind illegal dealings in capturing these animals from the wild. It has been proved both in Africa and in Asia that farming pangolin is not is, is just not viable, both from a, a resource uh, point of view, i.e. the amount of money, um, expertise, dietary requirements, etc., that needs to go into these um, animals to successfully keep them in captivity and breed and successfully have the mother raise the young to have the young breed the next generation is just not going to happen correctly or as fast as it would be able to make the species viable in captivity. I think that's point one. Point two, it's been proven with bear bile, with tiger parts, etc., that farming animals in captivity don't reduce the demand on the wild population. So why are we even discussing it? Why are we even talking about pangolins and farming in the same sentence? This should be eradicated from the beginning. It does not work. It will not work work. So let's stop discussing it. If anybody is discussing it, if anybody thinks that farming pangolin for a conservation purpose is even vaguely going to make a difference or have an impact, they honestly don't know what they're talking about, in my opinion. I agree 100% with you. Nobody really knows how many pangolins are left. What we do know is that tens of thousands are being snatched from the wild every year. Some people have said that without pangolin population data, we can't make the case for stopping the trade. But is that true? How does the studying populations and gathering data fit in with investigating illegal trade and enforcing the laws? Well, the, the research on wild populations of pangolins is, is, is very important for, for a number of reasons. We, we really need to to be um, measuring the impact trade is having on different populations to help us prioritize where on-site or on-the-ground enforcement should should be stepped up. Um, and we really don't even understand how fast certain populations of pangolins are being depleted by the trade. 
it really has to go hand in hand, looking at the wild populations and looking at the trade and the impact trade is having on those populations. It's, it's, it's important for us to also understand how, how pangolin populations respond to trade or respond to um, good enforcement efforts. If How long would it take a pangolin population to recover after um, enforcement efforts have been successfully implemented? How long would it take populations um, to recover in an area where, where anti-poaching operations have been stepped up and, and are efficient? We, we don't understand anything like this. There, there are a group of species that are incredibly difficult to study in the wild. Even just just finding them is, is hard enough, let alone learn, let alone learning anything about them. Um, clearly, the, the number one priority has to be strong, strong enforcement. Break these trade chains, put these criminal networks that are moving pangolins out of business, and put the, the, the kingpins behind it all behind bars. That that has to be the number one priority. But we really don't know enough about pangolins to, to properly protect them in the wild even. So we, we do have to spend uh, putting more effort in, in learning about how pangolin, as, as I mentioned, how pangolin populations respond to, to over-harvesting or respond to, to recovery uh, efforts. We, we, we don't know enough about that. And so we, we can't really do just enforcement. It has to be done hand-in-hand hand with, with research and with other protection measures. You have population densities, which is a, res- a research program, and you have law enforcement, okay? If we waited to find out how many pangolins we had in A, B, and C area before we did anything on enforcing, we wouldn't have anything to enforce because all the pangolins would be eradicated. Saying that, we need to look at it hand in hand. If you're asking me, we believe at Tiki Highwood Trust that enforcing the law and correcting the legislation and bringing and creating a greater awareness for the plight of this animal is more important to save the species in the long run than finding out how many pangolins we have. What we can show within the time that we've worked with pangolin, which is over the last 22 years, is how the demand has increased, how the poaching has increased from a year-to-year basis. So equipped with that knowledge, that research, we can sit here and, and say, hey, the poaching has increased tenfold. The, the demand for this animal is not decreasing in the slightest. And therefore, we need to make sure that the laws are strongly upheld within countries like Zimbabwe and, and, and neighboring countries. You know, Zimbabwe and, and all African countries have borders. And what, what we're finding now is that uh, these animals are moving between one country to another. And we need to create the strength. One weak link and we losing the plot. So in Africa and in Asia, we need to bring in the enforcement. The enforcement will have more of an impact right now today to save this animal than finding out how many pangolins are in the bush. You've been listening to the Behind the Schemes podcast, episode 42 with Dr. Chris Shepard and Lisa Highwood. We've been talking about the state of the pangolin in the context of the run-up to CITES COP17. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you have learned new things on our podcast and will join us in our battle to stop the economic exploitation of endangered species. Be sure to check out the Behind the Schemes blog on our website, anambiticus.com. This is Risha Kota Larson with Behind the Schemes.